0: podcast is a ministry of the First Baptist Church of Diana, Texas. If you're in East Texas, you can gather with us on Sundays at 10.15 a.m. You can find more episodes of our podcast on iTunes, Spotify, and on our website, www.fbcdiana.org. Thanks for listening. Well, if you have your Bibles, I'd be really glad if you'd open those with me to the book of First Corinthians today. First Corinthians chapter 3. Verses 1 to 15 is our primary passage for this morning. If you brought your own Bible, great. If you didn't, there should be a hardback black one not too far away from you in a seat back nearby. And if you're looking for that in the hardback black Bibles, 1 Corinthians chapter 3 will be on page 896. 896. And today will be a more of a, a topical message than an expositional one, though I think, I believe that... Uh, What I'm doing as I preach this morning will be faithful to the passage in its context. But today we're on the topic of evangelism. This is one of those uh, core truths, core uh, teachings, instructions, beliefs, practices that we as a church family uh, need to have in common in order for us to all be joined together and headed in the same direction together. So as, as a church family... Uh, There are some truths which we hold together, which make us Christian. We believe that Jesus is the savior. And that's what that's one of the things that makes a Christian a Christian is believing that Jesus is the one that God has sent to save sinners like us. There are other truths, though, that we believe that we hold to as Christians that make it possible for us to be united, not only in a shared faith, believing and trusting in the Lord Jesus, but also in a shared practice as a local church body. This is one of those things. Uh, we, We believe together what evangelism is, and we believe together some general principles about how evangelism is supposed to happen in order that we all are moving in the same direction as a local church family together. With that sort of content in mind, I'd like to start by asking you, who is the most successful evangelist that you can think of? You don't have to say it out loud, but just in your mind, think for a second. Who's the most successful evangelist, alive or dead, that you can think of? Well, one might come to mind a guy named George Whitfield. He preached about 18,000 times in 34 years of evangelistic ministry during the mid 1700s. He's one of the major leaders that God used during a time that was called the Great Awakening. Many of his sermons were preached to crowds numbering more than 10,000. And countless people are known to have responded to the gospel throughout his ministry. Maybe you thought of someone like Billy Graham, a little bit closer to our time era. According to BillyGraham.org, during the mid to late 1900s, Graham preached to nearly 215 million people at hundreds of evangelistic rallies, which he called crusades. His lifetime audience, they they, uh, sort of gathered some... Um, statistics and put these all together, including radio and television broadcasts and his in-person preaching, uh, they estimate that his, his overall lifetime audience topped 2.2 billion. And the number of people who responded with some sort of profession of faith uh, with these Billy Graham rallies or crusades is again, innumerable. Uh, how about a pastor named Charles Spurgeon? When evangelism is the topic at hand, Spurgeon is certainly someone who comes to my mind. Spurgeon was an English pastor during the mid-1800s, and over the course of his 38-year senior pastorate at the New Park Street Church, what eventually became known as the Metropolitan Tabernacle, there were 14,460 converts added to his church's membership. Now, they all didn't stay at the same time. The largest his congregation ever became, I think, was somewhere around 5,000. But over the course of that long tenure of his senior pastorate, there were that many and uh, these were, again, added to their church membership. He was, uh, his was the largest independent congregation in in historic terms. This is a uh, Baptist church, not uh, associated with directly uh, the Church of England. So independent congregation, think, think Baptist church. And his was the largest in the world at that time. However, Spurgeon once noted that we do not consider soul winning, seeing people come in, uh, um, make decisions for Jesus, uh, be converted, this kind of language in our own day. We do not consider soul winning to be accomplished by hurriedly inscribing more names upon our church role in order to show a good increase at the end of the year. Spurgeon said, this is easily done. And there are brethren who use great pains not to say arts to effect it. He said soul winning was not about adding people to your membership roster especially not just to have more than you did last year. He said, if you want to do that, that's easy. And lots of people can bring this about. He went on then to admonish his fellow preachers and many others since. He said, do not consider that soul winning is or can be secured by the manipulation or sorry, the multiplication of baptisms and the swelling size of your church. Spurgeon was saying, don't think that the way you measure the the success of evangelism, soul winning, is by increasing your number of baptisms or the number of folks listed on your church roster. I want to ask you, as we start today, can can successful evangelism be measured? Can you measure it? Think on that for a second. What does successful evangelism look like? If you were to have this in your mind, even these examples I've given this morning, how would you measure successful evangelism? How should we go about the task of evangelism in our own day? And how would we keep from being discouraged if our evangelistic efforts don't stack up so well against those, maybe these guys we've mentioned this morning, or, or maybe even other people beside us right now? How do we keep from being discouraged if our results don't look the same? Well, these are the kind of ideas that I want to, I want to press into a little bit this morning. Actually, I want to press into quite a lot. I want to, I want to dispel some misunderstanding about what successful evangelism looks like. And I want to point to a particular passage of scripture. First Corinthians chapter three, verses one to 15, to see just one example of where the Bible teaches us what Faithful evangelism is in fact, i'm gonna i'm gonna use that term rather than successful because Successful evangelism has much more of a, a sort of an american Uh, you know capitalistic build the company build the organization type feel than faithfulness So what does faithful evangelism look like and how would we measure it? How would we know? Let's turn our attention to first corinthians chapter 3 and would you mind standing together with me as I read from first corinthians chapter 3 verses 1 1- through 15. 1 Corinthians three verses one to 15. But I brothers could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food for you were not ready for it. And even now you are not ready for you are still of the flesh. But God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one and each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. According to the grace of God given to me like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation And someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest for the day will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. Thank you, Lord, for your word. You can all be seated. The main point uh, hopefully has been up behind me for a little while now. It's a lengthy one. The lengthy version of my main point is that evangelism is God's invitation for everyday Christians to share in the labors of all other Christians from all time and space who unitedly contribute to the miraculous growth of Christ's kingdom. And all will each and, and will each proportionately enjoy a reward for faithfulness. The slightly abbreviated version is that evangelism is God's invitation for everyday Christians to unitedly contribute to the growth of Christ's kingdom and enjoy a reward for faithfulness. For those who'd like to take notes, there'll be five points, uh, some a little shorter than others. The first point will be considering this idea of Christians acting infantile. Uh, Secondly, divinely assigned servants. A third God given growth, seeing really the emphasis of this passage. Fourthly, and hopefully very practically, taking a look at careful building and faithful sowing, and then fifth and finally, waiting for the reward. We've got a lot of ground to cover, so let me get straight to it. Christians acting infantile. We see this right at the very beginning of our passage in verse one. The apostle Paul, who sometimes is gentle in his writing and other times not so much, is very straightforward here when he's writing the church, the church members in Corinth, uh, a literal town in early uh, in the first century of Christianity, the first century of of uh, uh, AD uh, uh, time frame. He's writing to this actual church with actual people, and he's telling them, "I wish I could write to you as spiritual people, but I can't because you're acting like children, infants in Christ." He calls them in verse one. These infants in Christ were acting of the flesh. He says in verse one. They were, verse 3, expressing jealousy and strife. In verse 4, we're told that they're behaving only in a human way or according to man. They were, in verse 4, breaking into factions, we're told. Some saying, I'm with Apollos. Others saying, well, I'm with Paul. And Paul says this sort of thinking is being merely human, the English standard puts it. Or the King James says, carnal. Or as the Holman Christian puts it, unspiritual people. The point is, is that they're being immature. They're showing a lack of spiritual maturity. And the Apostle Paul is pointing that out. Well, this begins to teach us, it more than implies, that the Christian life, though it is miraculous, it is similar to typical life development. So Christian conversion and sanctification, these are miraculous uh, activities. Only God can bring such things about. But in our experience of them, they can be very ordinary and progress in the same kinds of ways that ordinary life progresses. So, for example, we can see that the Apostle Paul teaches the church in Colossae something very practical about the miraculous stuff that God has done, bringing them into Christianity the miraculous stuff that God continues to do as they grow in their Christian faith and living, and then very practically pointing to what they must do in order for them to participate in this ongoing spiritual growth. Let's turn there together just really briefly to Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 through 10. It's just a little bit of a right-hand turn from where you are now. If you get to Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, then comes Colossians. Turn with me to Colossians chapter 3. If you have that hardback black Bible, you're looking for page 925, 925. Paul teaches the church here and take also a special note of the way that there's the pairing of indicatives that which is true with imperatives that which must be done. Uh, see how that goes together in our passage. Let's start with verse 1. If then you have been raised with Christ Jesus, with Christ, seek the things that are above. There's the indicative imperative combination I was already, I was talking about. It's already showing up. You have been raised, indicative, this is true. Imperative, seek the things that are above. This is true of you. Now do this. Participate in this way. Seek the things that are above. Where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Verse two, imperative, set your minds On things that are above, not on things that are on earth. Verse 3, indicative. You have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. All of that is indicative. These are all true realities. Verse 5, though. Put to death. Imperative. Therefore, what is earthly in you? Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness which is idolatry on account of these, the wrath of God is coming in these indicative. You once walked when you were living in them, but now imperative, you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Another imperative, do not lie to one another. Seeing that you have indicative, you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. So if someone asks you is is spiritual progress, is spiritual growth, is spiritual maturity, is it something you do or is it something that God does or has done? Well the answer is yes. Yes it is. It is something that God has done and is doing and it is something that you yourself do. You participate Right here in this passage, we see those things put side by side and no apology for it. That God himself is at work in us and that God calls us to put effort into our own putting off of the old self and the putting on of the new. The indicatives in this passage in Colossians chapter three are spectacular and they are miraculous. Think of what is said about these once lost in sin people. You have been raised with Christ, verse one. You have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. The death that you deserve because of your sin, Christ has died and that counts for you. And now the life that you don't deserve is indeed yours and it is hidden with Christ in God. It is protected, therefore, preserved. The promise there in verse four, again, another indicative, you will appear with him. That is with Christ in glory. This is a fantastic hope. This is the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. You are sinful, but you have been raised with Christ Jesus from your sinful estate. You deserve death, but Christ has died on your behalf. There's no way that you could conjure up life within yourself, but God has produced this through the Lord Jesus Christ and gives it to you. It is your present possession. And it is something that you will enjoy more fully in the end. Notice then also the ordinary and practical imperatives that we see here in this passage. Colossians 3 still. Verse 1, seek the things that are above. Verse 2, set your mind on things that are above. Verse 5, put to death what is earthly in you. Verse 8, you must put them, that is those earthly desires and practices, all away. Verse 9, do not lie. We see then, as I'm uh, you know, heading back to 1 uh, Corinthians chapter 3, where our primary passage is, I just wanted to point out how the whole Bible teaches us that there is a miraculous aspect of our conversion being brought into the family of God by the work of the Holy Spirit through the proclamation of the gospel. And there is a miraculous ongoing work of the Lord's Spirit in the lives of believers as we grow in Spiritual maturity, but so, too, is it very practical in the means of grace, the the things that we do in the day in, day out uh, on a day in, day out basis that that causes that spiritual growth to continue. So, yes, indeed, it is miraculous, but don't think that it just happens by osmosis, uh, that you don't put any effort into it, that there's nothing that you must do in order to grow spiritually and also Don't be particularly surprised when your fellow church members act with spiritual immaturity. Don't be surprised when your fellow church members sin against you. Why is it that the children in our home are so surprised when their brother or their sister sins against them, but are not so surprised? Uh, or they're, they're, they don't think it's a, a spectacular thing when they, when they need grace themselves, right? We are not that different. Whether you are one year old or a hundred years old in your Christian development, it is going to look very similar to we who've had kids grow up in our own homes to that kind of slow over time growth that happens both physically and spiritually, But we also recognize both from our primary passage and Colossians chapter three, that we're not supposed to let spiritual immaturity go unchecked. So we're not to be surprised by it. You and I we're we're on a trajectory. We if if we are by God's grace, trusting in, believing in clinging to the Lord Jesus today, then we are Christians. We are spiritually alive. We have love for the Lord Jesus and love for others. And we are on the pathway towards spiritual growth, spiritual maturity. But we have not arrived yet. That's true, but we're also not to just be satisfied with the status quo. We all are to be eagerly growing in grace, growing in the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ, growing in spiritual maturity. And so too, we are not to be surprised when our fellow church members sin against us or act immaturely, but we're not to let that go unchecked. We are to call one another to repentance and growth. But there's also something to keep in mind is that we, are not to be so arrogant to think that we don't need to grow in knowledge, in holiness, in spiritual maturity. The Apostle Paul in Colossians chapter 1 expresses really what the pastoral heart is. He says in Colossians chapter 1 verse 28, Him, Christ, we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we might present everyone mature in Christ. Christian living has an end game. And the end game is spiritual maturity. But none of us who are alive in this room right now have arrived yet. So if Christians, if church members are not to be factious and not to be immature, though we recognize we all are in need of spiritual growth, we're not then to to show the kind of spiritual immaturity these Corinthian Christians were. How then are we to think about the various stations and skill sets and opportunities we have For serving Christ and others. We are different after all. We have different skill sets. We have different desires. We have different opportunities. Different stations in life. We're at different levels of spiritual maturity. If we're not then to be factious. The mature folks are going to be over here. And the immature folks over there. If we're not to do that. How are we supposed to think about our differences? Well I think we are to understand. That God has assigned each of us. At this very moment. And every moment before it. He has assigned everything that we have exactly as he sees fit. And this really is getting closer to the heart of our passage. So point number two, then, is the divinely assigned servants, the, the nature of divinely assigned servants. We see in this passage that the Lord assigns his servants. We see it specifically in verse five. First Corinthians chapter three, verse five. What or who is Apollos? What or who is Paul. The scripture answers the questions for us. They are servants, diaconoi. they are ministers, deacons, servants through whom you, the people there in Corinth, the Christians there believed as the Lord assigned to each. The Lord assigns the servant and the Lord assigns or gives or grants the result of his or her service. Both are true. We'll dive more into the results and how God is the one who assigns that in just a bit. But God also assigns the servant. He's the one who puts these folks in place, skills them how he sees fit, gives them opportunities how he sees fit. Romans chapter 12, verse six, teaches us that we have different gifts from God, which we have been given according to his grace. First Peter chapter four, verses 10 and 11, they command us to live as stewards of God's gifts, And to live our lives uh, in a way that glorifies God. Uh, I I could stack up passages like this. Everything that we have received, we have received from the Lord. And he has intended for each of us to be exactly who we are, for his purposes, and to be his servants. The Lord is the one who assigns such things. So then a natural sort of second, second um, uh, reality or a, a, a implication of that is that we should be asking ourselves the question, well, if it doesn't really matter who Apollos is and who Paul is, who are you and who is anyone else, you know, why would you boast in the skill set that you have and think that you are a better servant of the Lord than someone else because of your skill set, your opportunities, your resources, or your results? Or why would you think anybody else is a better servant of the Lord merely because of their opportunity, their skill set, their resources or their results? First Corinthians chapter four, verse seven says, what do you have that you did not receive? If then you have received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? It's the same letter to the same Christians on the same sort of topic. Everything you have is a gift from the Lord. Why do you pretend? Why do you act like? Why do you talk like? You are not just a recipient of God's gracious grace. This is true of every aspect of our lives. But we're especially focusing our attention on evangelism this morning and the results of evangelism. And this feeds us directly in to this next point. point number three, that God is the one who grants or assigns or gives the growth. Point number three, God given growth. We see the the analogy used here of planting and watering. we also see an analogy of building, which we'll get to in just a bit, but the planting and watering shows up in verse six and also uh, in in verse five. And we'll get to it more in a bit, but right now I just want to just quickly note there's a division and a chronology to the labor that's described in this passage. So Paul says in verse six, his labor was planting. And then he says, but Apollos' labor was watering. He uses the analogy of planting and watering, which is is farming. It's field work. Uh, But notice the chronology. Paul did one aspect of this. He's planted. Uh, Apollos comes later and does another aspect of the work. He waters. Both are participating in the labor. Both are sharing in the results. But ultimately, it's God who produces them. Paul's the one who established the church in Corinth. By preaching the gospel and baptizing those who responded with repentance and faith. You can read about that in Acts chapter 18. And Apollos preached and taught in Corinth later on, Acts chapter 19. They both contributed, both shared in the growth of Christ's kingdom in Corinth. But again, God is the one who gave the growth. That's clear in 1 Corinthians 3. And it's clear as you read the storyline of the book of Acts. Acts chapter 18, verses 9 to 10. God's the one who gives the growth. So let's key in on this for a bit. God is the one who who gives spiritual growth. He creates spiritual life. He converts sinners. God builds his building. God grows his field. Whatever analogy that you'd like to use. So really the the contrast to that, the opposite idea is this sort of man-centered acclaim, which the Corinthian church is embracing. You know, Paul is the great guy because look, he did this stuff and look at his result. No, no, Apollo's. This guy's fantastic. He's the one that we follow after. He's really our leader in this Corinthian church here because look at all of his accolades. But this kind of thinking is foolish. This is precisely Paul's point is that the Corinthian Christians, those church members are foolish to join themselves to one preacher or another because of some visible results. As though this guy is really effective because he has this many converts or this many followers or this many church members. The whole Bible stands in opposition to such thinking. Let me just mention a few different ways that we could oppose this thinking and show how it is foolish. It is infantile. It's fleshly. It's a worldly mindset. One way that we could oppose this from scripture is to just think of the doctrine of man. The doctrine of of fallen man in particular. The Bible teaches us that, that humanity, since Adam sinned in the garden as our first representative, that we have been born in sin ever since, and that we live our whole lives with a bent towards sin. What that means is that we cannot be talked into, argued into, coerced into, man, manipulated into spiritual life. You can't do it. So the doctrine of man teaches us that there's no way that any one of us can produce spiritual life in the lives of anybody else. So it would be foolish then to attribute any spiritual growth that we see in our lives or in the lives of others to us because you can't do it. It's impossible, humanly speaking. So the doctrine of man teaches us that this is foolish. The testimony of biblical history teaches us that this is foolish. We could look to example after example in the Bible of how God seems to almost always use the unskilled, the uninteresting, the seemingly impotent people For his glory to accomplish his tasks. God seems to delight in using the opposite of what the world says is needed for this situation in order to show just how glorious he is. A clear testament from scripture, we could look to first Corinthians chapter 18, really close by to the passage we're looking at primarily today. Uh, uh, I'm sorry, not chapter 18, chapter one, chapter one, verses 18 to verse thirty one. 1 Corinthians 1, 18 to 31. If you look to the left just a little bit with me, you can see it. Verse 18 says the word of the cross, the word of the gospel, the good news about Jesus is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Verse 26, then Paul begins to apply this to the, the church there in Corinth. And he says, consider your calling, brothers, brothers and sisters. Think Christians. He's using that term there. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. So that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Verse 31, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. So man-centered acclaim, pointing out someone's skill set, resources, opportunities, results as a reason to glorify this individual, to say, look how successful they are in the kingdom of Christ, is foolish. It's worldly thinking, and the whole Bible stands in opposition to it. If we boast about ourselves or about anyone else, let us boast in the Lord. Look at what the Lord has done. Our passage screams to us this morning, 1 Corinthians 3, 1 to 15, screams to us this morning that God is the one who gives the growth. Let me just walk through it with you. See uh, verse five, verse eight, that God is the one who assigns or gives or grants to each of his servants the growth that he or she sees as a result of his or her labors. Chapter six, Paul planted and another watered after him, but God gave the growth, the spiritual fruit. Verse seven, Paul said, neither he who plants nor he who waters think evangelism, think teaching the gospel with the aim to persuade neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. It seems to me, verse seven, above all other verses in our passage, clearly makes God the decisive factor in conversion and in spiritual growth. God is the one who gives the growth. Verse nine, the results of labor entirely belong to God. Paul says, you, the Christians there in Corinth, the church, you are God's field, God's building, not Paul's field, not Apollos' building, God's. Verse 10, Paul even points out that his skilled efforts to lay a foundation were a gift from God, according to God's grace. If Paul's efforts in helping to build the kingdom of Christ in the world as a capital A apostle, one who literally speaks on behalf of Jesus himself, with Jesus' own authority in the world, if he says my contribution to the laying of this foundation as a capital A apostle is a gift from God, how much more any of our contributions to the building of it? So then as we think about this, that God is the one who gives the growth, we want to ask ourselves, do we think think of ourselves... Do you think of yourself as a, as a great evangelist or a terrible one? And if, if either one of those, why do you think of yourself as a great evangelist? Because you've seen so many people converted throughout your time of sharing the gospel. Why do you think that? Why do you think that? Because God has decided in his providence and his lavish grace to grant people spiritual life through your sharing of the gospel. Why would you think that makes you awesome? Or if you think you're a horrible evangelist, because it seems like though you share the gospel faithfully again and again, almost no one responds with repentance and faith. Why would you think that makes you a bad evangelist? Now you might think you're a bad evangelist because you never really actually get around to sharing the gospel. And if you think you're a bad evangelist because you never actually share the gospel, then you're right. You're right. That does make you a bad evangelist. But friends, we are not to think of one church or one Christian as more successful than another because of the number of people who respond to their calls to repent and believe. If we think this way, then we're thinking the same infantile, carnal and worldly way that these Christians in Corinth were thinking. Again, we're thinking more like an American CEO. We're not thinking like Christians. If we hate to hear about gospel growth in someone else's life or in some other church. Again, we're thinking like American CEOs who, who have a, a limited market field in which to gain consumers. But that's not the way the church thinks. That's not the way Christians think. That's not the way the kingdom of Christ grows. God merely calls us to faithfulness where we are. And all our labors will be shown one day for what they truly are. And that's my last two points. First, well, and point number four, careful building and faithful sowing. Uh, Hopefully, this will be the most practical aspect of our talk today. Careful building and faithful sowing. Uh, First, let's quickly understand this, this analogy that Paul is using here of building and foundation. In verse 10, the apostle Paul calls his reader and us by extension, to let each one take care how he builds upon the foundation that was laid. So there's the building and there's the foundation. But we need to understand what he's talking about. Now, Paul talks about foundation and building in the same kind of way in Ephesians chapter 2. If you have fast fingers and you want to flip there, I'll just be there briefly. But you can look at Ephesians chapter 2, verses 19 to 21. Or maybe you could just write that down and look at it later on. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 19 to 21. There Paul says... Uh, To the Christians there in Ephesus, the church there, he says, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of God's household. You once were far off, but now you've been brought into the kingdom of Christ by way of the good news of the gospel. Verse 20 built. So the household of God, uh, this this kingdom with citizens is built. Verse 20 on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. I think Old Testament and New Testament scriptures. It's built on God's word, which has been proclaimed throughout history. Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, the sort of culmination of all that God has promised to do in human history. Jesus is that. Verse 21, in whom, so think about in Jesus, the whole structure, the whole building, the whole household of God, being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. A couple of quick things about this. Jesus... And his apostles laid the foundation of the New Testament church. There's a foundation that's established of the new covenant kingdom of Christ in the world. That established that that foundation has been established. It has been laid. So then local churches are visible manifestations of the universal church, which which is a foundation that has already been laid. And local church members are symbolically joined together one with another as pieces, as it were, of God's New Testament church dwelling place. God dwells among men, people, humanity by way of his gathered people, the people gathered in the name of the Lord, Jesus Christ. This is true universally, but it's made visible. It's manifest in visible local churches. And these then are building on the foundation that has already been laid. Jesus Christ himself being the cornerstone. Therefore, all Christians who follow after the apostles are sharing in the labor of building upon the foundation that has already been laid. And so that's Paul's point then. If that's true, because that's true, take care then how we build, verse 10. Since no one, verse 11, Paul says, I'm back in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 now, 1 Corinthians 3, our primary passage. No one, verse 11, can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Christ Jesus. So in other words, the careful building, the faithful sowing, if we're thinking mostly uh, in this portion of it on the analogy of the building uh, analogy, we can only build rightly and appropriately on the foundation. If we're building anywhere else, if we're building anything else, we're not building on the foundation. This is why there's the warning, which we'll get to in a bit, in verse 12, that some can build with gold, silver, and precious stones, and others can build with wood, hay, and straw. There are different ways that people might build. So let's think about what is careful building or valuable labor in the kingdom of Christ? Well, it is that which builds upon the foundation. And who is the foundation? It's the Lord Jesus Christ. So what does this mean in practical terms? Well, what it means in practical terms is that we have to point people to Jesus. This is how we contribute to the building of Christ's kingdom. This is how we contribute to the the expansion of Jesus' kingdom, God's household, God's building in the world, is by pointing people to Jesus. Which means we need to understand who the Bible has revealed Jesus as. Who is the biblical Jesus? And what is the biblical gospel? And if we point people to anything else, make your life better, live live a better life, self-help type stuff that's very common, commonly passed off as gospel in America and the Western world today. If we point to anything else as sort of the goal of, of human life, then we're 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 either building with wood, hay, and straw on the foundation that lasts, but the stuff we're putting on there doesn't, or we quite possibly could be building something entirely different over here. But it's certainly not contributing to the ongoing growth of Christ's kingdom in the world. If, however, we're having gospel conversations with our friends and our family members, about who Jesus actually is, about who we truly are, confronting our desperate need for a real savior to actually come and save our wretched souls. If those are the kind of conversations we're having with one another, calling people to repentance and faith, sharing the great hope and joyful promises that God gives to sinners like us that we can have life and not death, grace and not justice. Ah, now we're building rightly. Now we're carefully building so what then is faithful sowing? Well, faithful sowing—the other analogy that's being used here—God's field, the sowing, the, uh, the uh, sowing and the planting, uh, planting and watering of, of seed. Well, this is that labor which is active and repetitive. The New Testament is full of admonitions to persevere. Galatians six nine: Let us not grow weary in doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. Second Thessalonians three thirteen. As for you, brothers, do not grow weary in doing good. First Corinthians 15, 58. My beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Brothers and sisters, Christian growth, spiritual maturity. It happens not by one day a miracle happening and everything changes and and the person is totally brand new at this moment. Now, that's true in one sense. Indeed, conversion is a brand new reality. But the manifestation of it, the what it looks like on the outside, is something that develops over time. Remember the the indicatives and the imperatives we talked about in the passage we looked at before from Colossians chapter 3. It is true that Christians are born again. It is true that Christians have love for the Lord Jesus Christ and love for fellow Christians that wasn't there before. It is true that Christians actually want righteousness and not just for other people to think that they're good. All that stuff is true, but that doesn't mean that we actually live perfectly righteous and holy lives. In fact, it does take time for spiritual maturity and spiritual growth to happen. That's why we're called to persevere. Since God gives us the job then of being careful and faithful builders and sowers, what kind of evangelist ought we be? Well, I want to I propose to you that we should be, we ought to be careful evangelists. We ought to know the gospel well. We ought to talk about the gospel often with those who know it better than us so that we can grow to know it better. We ought to learn to avoid false gospels and almost gospels. We should be students of the gospel. We ought to be regularly preaching the gospel to ourselves, learning just how many and how wide are the implications and applications of the gospel. Brothers and sisters, if you are not preaching the gospel to yourself regularly, you are either incredibly self-unaware Or you are headed on a path toward utter destruction because you and I are sinful people and we need the gospel applied to our lives every single day. And either you know that and you're refusing to take the hand that's reaching out for you from the Lord Jesus Christ, or you are oblivious to the reality of who you are. We need the gospel every day in our lives. We need to know that God's love for us does not begin with us, but begins in his own character and nature. And that he is the one who's done all of the work that's necessary to bring us into right relationship with him. We need to know that he gives his spirit to all those he loves. And that by his spirit, his goal, his aim is to make us like Jesus. Therefore, we should be striving to live like Christ. We need to know those things and we need to believe those things. And we need to believe those things again today. We ought to be careful evangelists. We ought to be faithful evangelists. We ought to plant And water seed over and over and over and over and over again. The seed of scripture, especially the seed of the gospel. So we should read the Bible with our friends and our family members. Think of in our own church life. You you may or may not be aware of this, but to my knowledge, the the most recent converts into our church family who've been sinful folks who were not following Jesus, who came to realize, oh, my goodness, I'm not a Christian and I need to be and come into our church family, the way that that's happened is by either home or business Bible studies. Miss Kathy, who died this year, she decided some years ago she wanted to be a better evangelist to her family members. So she invited her mom and her sisters to do home Bible study. Week after week, they read the Bible together and they talked about it. And after some time, her mom read the Bible out loud for her for the first time that she could remember her mom prayed out loud for the first time that Miss Kathy could remember. And eventually we baptized Miss Wanda into fellowship with this church family. One of Kathy's sisters came to faith in that same way. Home Bible study, reading the Bible together and talking about it. That's the way conversions happen. I can think of Scott Hinton doing Bible study week after week, hanging out with folks at his gym. There's a back row of people right here in our auditorium this morning. Because of Scott Hinton's Bible studies and relationships with others. We should also read good Christian books together. Good Christian books that call us to understand the gospel better, that call us to Christian living, applying the gospel to our daily lives better. We should read books on church history, which tell us how other Christians in the past have understood the gospel and have applied it to their own lives and the lives of others. We should read books on Christian theology which help us to understand that the gospel is a message of doctrine is a message of teaching. And we should invite others to read these books with us. We should make confession of sin and repentance and gospel hope regular features of our daily conversation. As I've already been talking about before, you and I don't just need Jesus at some point in our past. We need him right this very second. And we should make that sort of reality part of our ongoing conversations with others that we know, especially those we know and love really well. But think about in your own household and the regular occasions on which there is need for repentance, confession of sin and the and the request for forgiveness. And think about how often that gospel can be entered, can be injected into that conversation. And we can all learn to, how to have those kinds of conversations with other people. We can learn how to think that way, that this is the very kind of thing that Christ died for. And that's the reason why my spouse or my child can forgive me at this moment. That's why why the parent can forgive the child when the the children have been acting in in a rebellious way. We can remember that we too are those same kind of children to our Heavenly Father who has such great patience and care with us. Don't live a such disjointed uh, lives thinking that Christianity and regular everyday life is so different. No, no, they are overlapping. We will come to better understand the gospel and better explain it when we think in this sort of long-term lifelong return to repentance and faith. So then our aim is for faithfulness. And then we leave the growth up to God. And then we wait for that coming day when all of our labors will be evaluated and rewarded. This is point number five, waiting for the reward. We see in this passage that all of our labors will be evaluated. A sobering portion of our scripture today is verses 12 and 13. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest. It'll be shown. It'll be revealed. For the day, that coming day, will disclose it. And it will, because it will, be revealed by fire. The fire will test what sort of work each one has done. Now, brothers and sisters, this passage is not meant to make Christians feel as though we we will ever suffer God's wrath. Christians have no wrath to fear from the Lord. God's wrath for Christians has been entirely exhausted in the person and work of Jesus Christ. God has one arrow of wrath that he has sent out and he has pointed the bow at the heart of his own son and he has released every bit of the tension. There is none left. So for those of us who are in Christ Jesus, there is no more condemnation, as the Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 8. God has no thought of us but love. But this does not mean that the stuff we do in our lives makes no difference. As a matter of fact, it does. The way we live will be evaluated. And think of this. In God's incredibly gracious grace, He has decided to give us spiritual results in our lives, in our own lives and in the lives of others, which he himself will reward. And he invites us to participate in that. So we should remember that our labors will be evaluated. So with this kind of mindset, that our labors will be evaluated, there's coming a day when the reward, the true reward, will be made manifest. Uh, what, what kind of application should this have for us? I want to offer four quick things. One, we should learn to play the long game. We should think in terms of generations and not days. We should not think in terms of big evangelistic event. I'm just not saying all evangelistic events are bad. I participated in many evangelistic events where we got to share the gospel and call people to repentance and faith. I'm not saying those are bad. But I'm saying we should think, not in terms of how many people came to our thingy and more so how is God working in this generation and how can we sow seed into the future? How can we shoot arrows of gospel truth into the future that will be reaping benefits for generations to come? We should think and learn to play the long game. Secondly, we should remember that God is the one who gives the spiritual growth. This is the bell that I've been ringing the whole time because I think this is the primary point of the passage. So we then should aim for faithfulness and not for results. We shouldn't do stuff because it gains a crowd. We should do stuff because it's faithful. We should share the gospel because the gospel is good news. Not because we want our friends to like us. Not because we want to get people's attention upon us. Remember that God is the one who gives spiritual growth. Thirdly, we should take our own discipleship seriously. Seriously. God has called us to be, every one of the disciples of Christ, God has called us to be pilgrim ambassadors and not merely religious consumers or individualistic spiritualists. So think about it in this way. What is it that that drives you when you arrive at church on a Sunday morning? What is it that drives you when you walk into the office on Monday morning? What kinds of things are you thinking with regard to the relationship that you have with others around you? When you attend church on the Lord's day, are you thinking like a consumer? What What's here to make me comfortable? What's here to make me excited? What's here to meet my preferences or needs? Or are you thinking about someone who is interested in sowing, planting, watering the seed of the gospel and seeing, seeing that produce fruit in your life and the lives of others? Are you thinking about an individualist? What is it that I like? What is it that I want? Are you thinking more about how you are a part of, of a family of believers, it says numerous applications, but I'll leave it there for the moment. Uh, lastly, we should keep an eye out for biblical features of conversion. True conversion is marked off by love for Christ and love for other Christians, not merely a profession of faith or a momentary decision for Christ. We should not be after what what businesses are after. We're not looking for buyers. Or we're not looking for someone to sign up for our multi level marketing scheme. We're looking for people to give up the entire way they've been living their lives before and to follow a new master. And that's a decision you probably don't want to make in the next five minutes. We want to see people coming to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And what the Bible says is evidence of that. Patience with other sinners. Kindness toward those who don't deserve it. Joy in salvation. Goodness and virtue, despite the temptations of this world. Let me leave you with this summary from uh, Charles Bridges. Uh, He wrote to other pastors, but it fits our context and our topic really well this morning. He said this in uh, one of his famous books uh, that he authored some years ago. He says, ministerial success, I think church's success, evangelistic success, must be viewed... As extending beyond present appearances. He said, The seed, the planted, watered seed, may lie under the clods till we lie there and then spring up. And is it no ground of comfort that our work may be the seed time of a future harvest? Is it no encouragement that your seed that you're planting and watering right now will not spring up until after you're dead? Isn't that an encouragement to you that there will be fruit? Or should we neglect to sow, he says, because we may not reap the harvest. Shall we not share the joy of the harvest, even though we be not the immediate reapers of the field? It has been admirably observed, he said, on this subject. In order to prevent perpetual disappointment, we must learn to extend our views. It often happens, he says that God withholds his blessing for a time in order that when the net is cast off the right side, uh, pointing to one of the parables or one of the experiences of the disciples with the Lord Jesus, when the net is cast on the right side, it may be clearly seen that the multitude of fishes enclosed are of the Lord's giving, lest men should attribute their success to a wrong cause and should sacrifice unto their own net or burn incense unto the altar of their own drag. He, he finally said, our plain and cheering duty is there is therefore to go forward, to scatter the seed, to believe, and to wait. May God help us to be careful builders, faithful sowers, and patient waiters for the harvest. And may God produce the growth that only he can. We trust that this message edified the listener and glorified the God who shows love and mercy to sinners in the person and work of Jesus Christ, His Son. Would you take a moment to leave a positive rating for us on your podcast app? You'll be helping others find this episode and more like it. If you'd like more information about First Baptist Diana, then please visit our website, www.fbcdiana.org.